Well, we come to the last lap of the retreat, which is always easier, excepting for those who, feeling it's ending, uh, discontinue their prayer, which is a pity. I'm sure you won't do that here, because prayer is cumulative and silence is cumulative, and therefore, like in, when you're in hospital resting, each day you rest, you get more rested, and so the therapy is effective. And the same in a retreat, the last day is obvious, very often the one which where things become most clear. The text that I would like to think about this evening very shortly as it's hot and also we're tired, is we want to think about our Lord's crucifixion. And Newman gives us a text from Isaiah 53.7 for those who are helped by reading the scriptures, as I hope you are. He was afflicted, he submitted to be struck down, and did not open his mouth. That's the text, and it's a very eloquent one, as I hope you'll see. I'd like first to turn uh, to the Open Golf Championship last week, because that has a bearing on our attitude to the crucifixion. Last week the open was going on and I was here in the chapel with all the holy men and so Father Stokel said he would record on his machine the last day's play and we'd all come together in the evening to see who had won and watch the whole day's play. So that was all very splendid. I didn't know that Father O'Leary and Father Stokel like Dirty Swine went up during the day and watched the play while I was in here. <laughs> and they kept up a kind of lie when I asked them how it was going, as though they didn't know. And so the, we all came up in the evening. They knew jolly well that Nick Klaus hadn't won. And there I was, the only fool, thinking he might win. Not till when I saw his second putt, I thought, never again. I only mentioned that about the crucifixion because it's exactly the position that the apostles must be when they see us. We know the answers, they didn't. So therefore, when we are thinking of our Lord dying on the cross, what did they know? They didn't really know what was happening. Whereas we, looking back, and with the advice of St. Paul, and Cardinal Newman and others, we do know. So we know how it's going to end, they didn't. Therefore, when I was saying to you the other day, at the last talk, about the marvel of God sending his son on earth, nobody knew that it had happened. This idea that the moment Jesus appeared, they all said, here's God, they certainly did not. I doubt if even our blessed mother knew. St. Joseph probably didn't know, the shepherds didn't know. All they knew was there was a great kerfuffle in heaven and that there was to be great joy and salvation promised to all. Then when they, our Lord was baptized, John the Baptist pointed him out as more worthy than he was, and the two first apostles followed him home. They didn't know they were dealing with God. It was an impossible idea in the ancient world that the infinite God would come on earth. The only thing they knew was that he might be the Messiah. And we must be quite clear that the Messiah foretold right through the Bible 
how sure God was in his ways, was to be the leader of Israel and to restore it to its natural glory. That's extremely clear right the way through the gospel. And when you look at even Isaiah, when he said these words, nobody thought it would be said of God the Son that he did not open his mouth. That was said, all the prophecies were dealing with the Messiah. I talked to a great Hebrew scholar the other day to be certain. No, the Jews had no idea that the Messiah could possibly be divine. They only knew that like God had sent Moses to call them out of the prisons of Egypt, so one day God would send another Moses to lead them to their national victory. And he would be a holy man, undoubtedly, that's all they knew. And our Lord looked just like everybody else. They were honored to meet him, and over the year, or three years that he had them with him, our Lord became more and more wonderful, but more and more baffling. There are many cases in the gospel where that occurs. But I would like just, it's worthwhile for all of us, just to hear read of the calling of the apostles, because it is, very moving when you hear them coming together. And how, it's in John, I think. I marked the place, but of course that doesn't mean it's in the right place. The first disciples, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. As he watched, Jesus walked by and he said, look, there is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned round and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where do you stay? Come and see, he answered. So they went to see where he was lodged and stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. There was no question of God becoming a man at that meeting. One of the two who had followed him after hearing John was Simon Peter's brother Andrew. The first thing he did was to seek out his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. They jumped very quickly to that. This term means the anointed. He brought him to Jesus who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, your name shall be Cephas, which is rendered Peter. The next day, he wanted to set out for Galilee, but first he came upon Philip. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the same town as Andrew and Peter. Philip sought out Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses spoke of in the law. That's all they'd found. The prophets too, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathaniel's response to this was, can anything good come from Nazareth? So he wasn't impressed. And Philip replied, come see for yourself. When Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him, he remarked, this man is a true Israelite. There is no guile in him. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked him. Before Philip called you, Jesus answered, I saw you under a fig tree. Rabbi, said Nathaniel, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded, do you believe just because I told you I saw you under a fig tree, you will see much greater things than that. So actually Bartholomew got a little further than the others, but even he said king of Israel for him meant 
another of these kind of Führers who turned up, and like Herod and others, and pulled the Jews out of the current mess. No, there's no evidence whatever at the start of our Lord's life and right through it that they really thought he was God. It was such a preposterous idea that the infinite God, all alone, Yahweh, could come on earth, that it took the whole Bible to prepare the way, and even John the Baptist did his best, but didn't really succeed. And all through the three years, even the 12 were collapsing. So it's the most extraordinary thing. It's like Nicholas's round of golf, uh, that uh, we know the answer, but they didn't. They must laugh now when they hear us saying all about our Lord. They knew nothing. They just thought he was a wonderful man. And if you want to see that proved and want to read it again, you read the famous chapter 24 of Luke, where the two disciples, after Good Friday, went to Emmaus, or as you call it, Emmaus. I don't know which way is right. At any rate, on the way, Jesus came up with them. They didn't recognize him. And they told about him about the sad things that had happened. He said to them, what things? They said, all those that had to do with Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet powerful in word and deed in the eyes of God and all the people. How our chief priests and leaders delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We were hoping that he was the one who would set Israel free. That's all they wanted. Besides all this, and then they talked about the women passing a room around that Jesus had risen. They were leaving the city, fed to the teeth. The whole thing had collapsed. So therefore, I'm sure we have to be very careful. If, otherwise, we don't understand the greatness of our position. They never knew. And the stumbling block for them was when Jesus died. Now, Cardinal Newman, in a very short sermon, and it's really most beautiful, he brings this out marvelously. He talks about our Lord on the cross. He reminds us that it's hypocrisy to pretend and say words of sorrow with him if we don't do his will. You're a hypocrite. And also he holds that giving way to feelings of emotion isn't going to do much good unless it meets our actions. He always comes back to that. Then he goes on to say how Isaiah said that he was taken, struck down, and did not open his mouth. And Cardinal Newman says, just think of all the beings on this earth who are done to death and can't speak. And he starts off by suggesting that we should think of animals that are tortured and treated badly and allowed to die and they can't do anything about it. And he mentions, for example, birds, and I've seen it, and you probably may have actually done it. When a farmer hangs up a living bird, a blackbird or something, on a string and leaves it there for a day or so, flapping around to keep other birds away, that poor bird can do nothing. I saw a bullfight in Madrid. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go and see another, I don't think. But when I went there, I was amazed when the sixth bull was being hacked to pieces, just like in a football game, all the people were getting up to get to their cars first. And they were all saying, goodbye, Mary, see you tomorrow, come down to tea. And here was this poor bull bleeding to death and being hacked at by everybody, and all the people weren't even watching. Or you take those little seals that are culled. We always have a great protest about them. They look so innocent, and they're clubbed to death, uh, so that 
people can have these special uh, jackets and handbags, etc., made of seal skin. So Newman says, just think of all the animals that suffer in batteries. You see them even alive being packed into lorries, and there's the first thing. Then he says, now look at babies. And the number of battered babies is constantly increasing. And you see babies in these homes and in hospital with broken skulls, broken arms. Their father and mother didn't love them or couldn't control their temper or drank. And you feel a great sickness, even more so when it comes to abortion. I feel quite ashamed now coming from England, and I hope you feel ashamed of being American when you think that a, that a million babies are being put away every year, fetuses, here in your country. I'm quite sure the West is going to die by its own sins. The Archbishop of St. Louis the other day made a statement, I don't know how true, Archbishops normally tell the truth, uh, that um, in 120 medical, American medical schools, now they ask the first question, what's your view of abortion? And he was saying in his letter that very soon it'll be very hard for a man to become a doctor or a nurse if they put down that they're anti-abortion. And I also met two young Indians who were at the Jesuit College in Madras and have come over to the United States to do medicine, they were told me quite innocently they were going into gynecology uh, because now with abortions that's where the money can be made. They may be wrong, but whether that's true or not, a Catholic doctor said to me they have no right to put that question in, an abortion, in a medical school. It's a moral issue, you're not bound to commit yourself at all, but it's the thin end of the wedge. You and I must feel sick when you think that these little fetuses would grow up to have all the graces of our incarnation and be happy in heaven forever, knowing the language, and they're just done in. Cardinal Newman says, right, leave babies alone, go to um, Auschwitz and Belsen. He didn't know those, but he knew the equally cruel prisons of his own time in Russia, etc. Look at the number of innocent people who are shoveled in there couldn't raise a voice, couldn't do anything. Certainly at Auschwitz and places, all those millions and millions of people simply rounded up by a lunatic man and done to death in great cruelty, a plaything for the Nazi guards, couldn't say a thing. So Newman says, now look at all those people who can't speak. And then he says, the only man who could speak would be the son of God on the cross. He could have called a legion of angels, as he said to Pilate, he could certainly have made a great scene. He didn't say a word. Newman says, the silence of our Lord on the cross is the first thing that startles us. Why didn't he make a fuss? Why didn't he stand up and or even release himself? But no, like those other people, he kept dumb. He only said, Father, forgive them, and that's all. It's extraordinarily powerful when you look at the crucifix that the infinite God, as we now know him, uh, preferred to abandon his power and to die without a word, which gives us a very different picture from the Messiah that the apostles were looking for, 
they would certainly have expected the Messiah uh, to win the victory. If I'd risen from the dead, the first thing I would have done, not to go to the apostles, I'd have gone around to Carfas and given him a nasty shock. I'd have put my nose to him and said, sucks to you. <laughs> but funny enough, God, our Lord God missed the chance. And it's a most amazing story of God not speaking. So therefore, we can go on to think of his resurrection next, but you can imagine to those poor people who the Last Supper and standing in the distance on Calvary always thought that he was going to be such a success and he failed. It must have been the most agonizing evening for them all. Total disaster, as those two poor men retiring to a mess show. So we leave, that's what all that Newman says about the crucifix in the sermon I liked so much. I've read several others of his sermons. This one struck me as very powerful and one that we might have to follow ourselves when we're going to be treated badly if we dare to stand up against abortion and things. Newman has one other point which is worth making, it's very short, that where our Lord in the Gospel taught people how to pray, praying for themselves, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, our Lord in prayer taught us we can pray for ourselves. After Calvary, all the, the apostles only spoke of one kind of prayer, intercession. If you go through Paul or go through Peter or Jude or any of the others, those who survived Easter and was, had the Holy Ghost at Pentecost, all they talked about was pleading for other people. Why? Because our Lord's death on the cross gave us this immense power of intercession. You'll find it constantly, I've got a few quotations here, but there are hundreds, Cardinal Newman gave them as gave all. You have, for example, uh, St. Paul saying, be always joyful, pray continually, give thanks whatever happens, for this is what God in Christ will, wills you to do. Pray for us too. He writes to Timothy, First of all, then, I urge petitions, prayers, intercessions to be offered for all men, kings, men in high office, the congregation. He says to the, in Corinth to those who've got tongues, those praying in tongues do so to build up the church. Right the way through, every single quotation about prayer I found was intercession. We're the only church in the world left where we can intercede for pagans and we can intercede for the sick, for the dead, through our Lord, silence on the cross. They can't do that for us. If you say to a Japanese chap, pray for me, I'm going on retreat. I don't know what the Japanese for it is, I don't know, but they haven't got it in their blood. The Jews can't pray for anybody but their own race. They all pray for the, their own clan. The Mohammedans certainly wouldn't pray for Americans. No, it's a strange thing. The only church that's got prayers of intercession at the very front um, is ourselves. I talked to a group of Sisters of the Atonement who just come back from Japan after six years. They loved the place, they loved the people, but one of them said to me, the greatest joy we had was to have the faith. 
and to realize that we can pray for the people of Japan and call down our Lord's merits for them in a special way. They would like to go back to Japan. They felt they were so proud to have the faith and this power to intercede. So I do urge on you in the retreat, I haven't mentioned much on prayer, but it's typical of Newman to go through the whole of the New Testament to find that all the apostles were praying that Paul would get on in Macedonia, that the church in Corinth would do well, etc. And that brings me then to the end of the talk. Tomorrow there is a plenary indulgence, as you know, for those who've made a retreat. Indulgences have to be thinned out from time to time because otherwise, like Acts of Parliament or Congress, they become so numerous you can't find your way among them. So every now and then they knock out a lot of indulgences, and so I'd, they did that the other, not so long ago. I don't know whether the indulgences have gone metric yet, but that will come next. <laughs> But the only strange thing is that the Pope insisted that the indulgence for a retreat should be, a plenary indulgence should remain. Indulgences are part of the story of the church. They're not just a devotion. It's based on the communion of saints. By the communion of saints, I mean, as the old catechism said, that all the members of the church in heaven, on earth, and in purgatory are in communion with each other as having one body in Jesus Christ. It's again our Lord's merits on Calvary that all the saints share. We belong to a family. And therefore, the church has always held uh, that uh, if you're bankrupt, then you can always call in a good family on those who've done better to help you. St. Elizabeth Seton's almost certainly got an American credit card of some sort, and so she'll certainly come down to help you and St. John Neumann. So therefore, we share in their merits, and the harm we've done by um, all our sins, they're forgiven, but harm, you said things, you run people's characters down, it doesn't stop. The, all those can be wiped out through the indulgence in a retreat. The church gives the, the indulgence because coming on a retreat is so costly. It's very hard work, our silence, our prayer. It's only fair that God would want to reward everybody who's connected with the retreat house. But you must pray for the Pope's intentions, which are the reunion of Christendom and peace in the world. So you ought to be sure, as a prayer of intercession, having prayed for the Holy Father, who's better today, they say he'll only be now out of action for two weeks or so, we ought to pray for his health to be restored and also to pray for his intentions which are the intentions of the church.